Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. And a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning to you all. There's actually raindrops on the skylight when I left the house this morning. I could hear Yes, open up. Bring on the rain. There's 40... Eight years ago that the reconstruction of the London Bridge was complete in Lake Havasu City. Took 400 workers three years as opposed to the original when it was constructed in 1821. Took 800 workers six years. Robert McCulloch purchased the London Bridge for $2.46 million and spent how much to relocate it? I can't even imagine. Seven. (laughs) Yeah. Seven million to relocate it. It was shipped over to uh, the California coast and then trucked in the rest of the way where it's set on a seven-acre compound uh, during the construction, after which the one-mile dredge uh, known as the uh, Bridgewater Channel was then dug underneath it, creating the hot spot of Lake Havasu City today. It's been our focal point this month as our staycation winner enjoyed a trip there. We'll have him on at the end of this hour to talk about his experience at Lake Havasu and his stay at the Nautical Resort, the only beachfront uh, resort in Arizona. <laughs> aren't aren't they celebrating their 128-degree day at Havasu like this week? It's today. Oh, it is today. Yeah, we, we're, we'll talk about the that. Hot, at, the hottest at, day ever recorded. 25 years ago. 128 degrees. degrees recording Lake Havasu Woo! City, and they're having a party to celebrate. Okay. <laughs> I knew it was right about now. I didn't know it was today. They're going to watch the ice melt. Yep. Oh. That, that, that's a tease. <laughs> man. Man, oh, man. Uh, now, a sad point in Arizona history. Uh, tomorrow will be the sixth anniversary of Yarnell Hill Fire. Um, I finally... Uh, watch only only the brave this week. The movie dedicated to the yeah. hot shots. I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. I never had the stomach for it in the past. And it's funny. I I, I don't. It wasn't because of the anniversary. It was just a random thing that uh, I started watching it this week and then realized. Oh my! You know we're we're right up on the sixth anniversary. Had, have you watched it? I have. I, I did. I saw it. I saw it pretty soon after it came out. I was I, I couldn't believe the the cast they had in there. You got to see the dudes sing country music. Um, James <clears throat> James Hickok was there. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, we used to watch a TV show, The Pony Express. You had Old Man Teaspoon that ate the raw onions. The uh, the hotshot gunfighter in that was James Borland, and it finally didn't look I, from that time. He's always been James Hick. I can never remember his real name, but he's like got the beard and he's gray now. Finally, for once, I think the age and the facial hair, it, it didn't look like the old gunfighter. Uh, but I thought they did a, a really good job. And most of it was the lead up to it. There was only about 20 minutes at the end where it was actually the fire and the final 20 minutes, the tragedy that happened. Um, and you know, for some of them, you learned that this, you know, they're planning on retiring. This was going to be their last fire season. Um, and, and everything leading up to it, like the, the back burn that they had started and that the airdrop 
put out their back burn instead of the, the fire that was started. And then, you know, you don't know if it's true, but the flyover, uh, you know, there was another one that was trying to save them. And in the movie, you know, he, they go right over the firefighters, but they can't see him, so they don't drop it. But, you know, we're not sure exactly how close that plane was to over him. But just that, that whole buildup. Um, I can't believe and, it's been six years. Oh, and, wow. and that they were only 600 yards from the ranch that they were trying to go to. It's actually called the Not Much of a Ranch. They call it something different in the movie and on fire maps, but it's the Not Much of a Ranch. Those people actually stayed in that home yeah. while the fire burnt around them uh, and didn't even know the, the hot shots were over there. Yeah. It's uh, So tomorrow is the sixth uh, anniversary of that, and they're doing at the, um, the, the... The two things I always remember about that is, one... I could smell the fire from my house, and I generally wouldn't think anything of it, but ju- there was just something strange in that day mm. and the haze that made me turn on the news, which I never do on a weekend when I'm home, and the story was just breaking. And then the second thing that always burned in my mind is Mayor Kirkendall uh, told me about his where he was when, when he got the news and you know just what it was like in that, that moment. Um, those things will, will forever be burned in my mind. But there is uh, what they call a gourd dance from 11 to 4 today at the Frontier Village in Prescott. And then at 442, the bell at, Yar, at uh, Yavapai County Courthouse and Yarnell Memorial Park will ring 19 times for the 19 fallen. So sad time in uh, Arizona history, but let's cheer it up. Yeah. Let's little nice way to, to remember, remember those firefighters. So let's through, switch gears. Through, through American history, you, there's a lot of uh, different uh, countrymen that are known for different things. You know, the, the Chinese and the railroads, the Irish, uh, you know, the, the Cajun this, the English founders. You know, one of the five seas in Arizona is cotton. And did you know that at one point in time, 90% of the cotton in Arizona was picked by Germans? I did not know that. Well, <clears throat> we've got conservator Steve Hosa in to tell us. The rest of the story. Can I say that? Can I steal that from Paul Harvey? Or is that copyrighted? We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll monitor the phones here. We'll find out. Good morning, Steve. Welcome. Good morning. <laughs> and you also wrote a book about this. Yes, I did. <clears throat> so set, set the stage for the story. During World War II, after the United States got into the fight, the first invasion that the Allies staged was in North Africa. As... The tide started to turn against the Germans. More and more prisoners were falling into Allied hands. And the British and the Americans were going to abide strictly by the Geneva Convention in the proper treatment of their prisoners of war. This meant that most of the prisoners were going to Britain and then later to Canada. But as these camps became so overcrowded, Winston Churchill and uh, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, decided that they were going to start sending the prisoners to the United States. And the first ones that came here in late 42 were German uh, submariners. These were ones that had been um, captured in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of the United States. And the first camps were located on uh, on the East Coast in Virginia, New York, and Boston, places like that. And so as we're getting all these German POWs, we got to find places for them, and they gradually go from the east out to the west. And there was a, a 
a rule on how long they could stay at any one camp. They had to continually keep moving them. Yes, as more and more prisoners, like for instance, after the invasion of Sicily, then Italy, and then later on D-Day, the camps were being built further west until by the time of D-Day, which was June 6, 1944, there were camps in uh, 511 camps total in the continental uh, United States, and that included 24 here in Arizona. 24 just in Arizona? Yes. And that list is actually in your book that's called First Person Accounts of German Prisoners of War in Arizona. I mean, this is a pretty extensive book. I went to Germany to interview a lot of the, um, the prisoners of war. Uh, when I got out of college, my first job was at the State Capitol Museum and then later at the State Archives, which was on the third floor. And I met a lot of the, um, the docents, the volunteer docents, who were citizens here during the war. And as we were talking about the war, they started to mention seeing the prisoners out doing work. And this is something that I had never heard of growing up here in Phoenix. So I got curious, and I started to record their, their stories. And through them, I met former guards, farmers that use the prisoners for farm labor. And then I thought, I wonder what the prisoner's story is on this. And so a friend of mine from ASU who was with the Tempe Sister City program, Richard Tischler, he's put me in touch with a German veterans newspaper that allowed me to put in several articles. I, I speak German, so I put several articles in the newspaper to ask anyone that was held in Arizona to contact me. And it was like the floodgates opening. I had over 100 responses in the first year. And I've had many of them come back to visit their former campsites, reunions with guards and farmers. And then we went to, to Germany in 94 to interview many of them, including some of the ones who escaped uh, from Papago Park in December of 1944. And I like the way your book layout goes. It's not like you're writing a narrative and recording uh, details from interviews. It's, it, it's like a back and forth storyline between the actual prisoners and prison guards. Yes, I decided, because I wasn't alive at the time, obviously, that I was going to let them speak in their, their own words. It was going to be a first person, literally. And I actually stole the format from a book that I had read in college on the Bataan Death March, and it was put together in exactly the same way. It was simply the words themselves of the men who had gone through this, and I thought if I ever did write anything on this, it would be in that same format. Let them speak their own words, and then let the reader um, deduce from that. And this, one of these 24 camps, the one at Papago, was the largest uh, escape on U.S. soil during World War II. It was like the great escape in our own backyard. Yes, there were other tunnel escapes. There was one in Trinidad, Colorado, and where a trio of prisoners got loose. But this was the biggest. It uh, started... In, uh, on December 23rd, about 11 o'clock at night, and 25 prisoners who had spent four months digging a tunnel, the tunnel was 178 feet long, uh, got out, and uh, their, their plan was to get, try to get into Mexico and then onto a neutral ship, try to get back to, to Europe. And I think one of the funniest aspects of the story is... Uh, I went to the National Archives and I got the official army account of the escape and the interrogation of the, the prisoners. And in every case, when the prisoners who were, had just been recaptured were interrogated, they were all asked, why did you escape? And 
Their answers were all the same. We hate it here. The food's terrible. Our quarters are awful. The uh, guards and the off and the American officers treat us very poorly. And, and we'll come back with the rest of the story. We can do a lot here, but we can't stop the clock. More with conservator Steve Hosa talking about the great escape. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. The Arizona Department of Tourism has divided Arizona into seven regions. Marshall Trimble calls them the Magnificent Seven of Arizona. They are the High Country, the Central Territory, Indian Country, Golden Corridor, Old West Country, Canyon Country, and the River Country. True or false? Text the answer to 411-923. Lake Havasu is in the River Country. I actually had to stop and think about this one. I thought, well, is it the river or is it the canyon? How how far and how are these regions divided? So if you think it's true that Lake Havasu is part of the river country, one of the seven regions divided in Arizona by the Office of Tourism, text TRUE to 411-923. If that's false, text FALSE. At the end of this programming segment, we'll pick a random right winner and send you two passes to any of Arizona's 35 state parks, including Roper Lake, our Dankworth Pond on the southeast part of Arizona in the shadows of Graham Mountain. Be a nice place to go get a little splash this weekend. And Arizona State Parks tweeted a link this week to their website with all the different water park or all the different state parks that have water on them. So you can design your Arizona staycation around where to get get a little splash this week. We're continuing our conversation with conservator Steve Hoja, who was just informing us that the German POWs thought we were pretty rotten to them, huh? <laughs> In their view at the time, uh, like I said, when they were uh, interrogated after they were recaptured, they were asked, all asked, why did you escape? And they said, because our treatment was so bad, the food or the attitude towards the Americans. When I interviewed them years later, I said, how was your treatment? fantastic. The food was great. The accommodations were great. We made friends among all the... During the war, they had to be obstinate. They had to be arrogant. And one of the things that the Geneva Convention accords them is that it is the right of every prisoner of war to try to escape. And if they can't escape, is to try and stir up as much trouble for the enemy as possible. So there was a lot of pranks that went on in the camps, some very funny stories. And in talking with um, escapees like like Heinrich Palmer when I interviewed him in Germany, he said the escape was simple, youthful desire for adventure. They knew they really couldn't go anywhere because most of them didn't speak English. You needed ration coupons to buy anything, and uh, Mexico was a long walk. But they just wanted to be free during Christmas and to escape the everyday boring life of a prisoner of war. Somehow, someway, 25 Germans kept in a POW camp, basically where Papago Park is, get a hold of a map, and they see Gila River. And being from Germany, that means there's flowing water. And like you said, a lot of these were submariners. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right. So water they can do. Water they can do. I can't imagine. You were talking about funny pranks. I can't imagine the look on their face when they got out of that tunnel, made their way down to the Gila River, and couldn't find a running stream. 
Three of the escape- this is going to be a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> three of the escapees didn't like the idea of walking to Mexico, so there were three POWs. They were um, Wilhelm Gunther, Fritz Uzzolino, and Wolfgang Claros. And one of them had stolen a uh, Arizona Highways map from a truck that would deliver supplies to their compound every day. And they saw that the Gila River was a blue line that went into the Colorado. So they thought they would <laughs> sail a boat down the Gila to the Colorado and then down into the Gulf of California. So they built a three-man kayak in the camp. They built it out of wood and canvas. And to give you an idea of the lack security in the camp, they all, and I've had this corroborated by other independent uh, prisoners, that the day before the escape, they wanted to see if the boat was seaworthy. So they dug a pool in the middle of two barracks out of sight of the um, guard towers, filled it with water, unfolded the boat. They all got in it got their double-sided oars, and it did not spring a single leak. So they knew that it was seaworthy. And they carried it out in two knapsacks. And uh, the night of the escape, it rained very, very hard. And they found refuge in the uh, Roosevelt School on the corner of 7th Street and um, Southern, or on, uh, on Southern Avenue, where they met up with two other uh, prisoners, Heinrich Palmer and Reinhard Mark. They spent the night there. And the three crazy boatmen, as they called themselves, made it down to the Gila and did not realize that it was just a series of puddles. Because like you said, uh, uh. Rosie, in Germany, the rivers are, are huge and flowing all the time. They didn't know that. They didn't know in Arizona that only during the monsoon seasons do we ever have water. So they were captured shortly afterwards. They, they threw their, their boat away. And <laughs> I don't need this anymore. <laughs> and, and Wilhelm Gunther said... Uh, I, we can laugh about it now, but we were very disheartened at the time. Oh, they must have been. I mean, I'm going to tell you what I think is the most surprising thing about this entire story. When I spent six years at ASU in the construction engineering class, every time we wanted to study Caliche, we went to Papago Park. The reason there's no housing on Papago Park is you cannot dig there. You cannot put in sewer lines. You cannot put in power lines underground. And these guys hand dug a 175-foot tunnel <laughs> through solid. I mean, Caliche is called God's concrete. <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue the conversation and the roundup. It, it wasn't that they all got captured right away. It took up to four months to get them all. We'll talk about how close some of them did get to Mexico. And the answer is true. Lake Havasu City is in the river region. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Keep that going, Gary. <laughs> We're talking the Papago Park Great Escape of 1944, 1944. Yes. 25 German POWs hand dig a 175-foot tunnel two and a half to three feet in diameter through solid caliche. I, that, that's the most incredible. I mean, I've tried, to, I've tried to dig a fence post in caliche. And decided to move the fence. And I decided to move. <laughs> that fence wasn't needed anyway. <laughs> After the escape was discovered, the uh, U.S. Army came in to investigate how this could have happened. And so all of the American officers that were interrogated all said the, the same thing. And... Real quick, ex describe the officers. <laughs> the American officers? Yes. Uh, 
Well, this was the first time in U.S. history that a large number of enemy prisoners of war had ever been brought to the United States. And so uh, we really didn't have the experience on handling so many. And so a lot of these officers and the guards, these were men who were who were considered 4F. They were not considered uh, eligible for any other combat or, mil- or combat service. And so a lot of them went to military police school. And one of the guards that I interviewed, Larry Jorgensen, he had one eye. And he said all of the guards in his company had only one one eye. And so they weren't the best of, <laughs> of soldiers. The guarding was extremely lax. And what, what Rosie said just before the break is exactly true. All of these American officers who were interrogated after the escape was discovered all said, well, we knew they couldn't tunnel out because oh, the camp is built on on, on caliche, and when they had to um, dig uh, leech fields or the posts for guard towers, they had to use e- explosives. And so they figured there's no way these Germans are going to be able to tunnel through this. And so that's why the guarding, even the admission of the, the guards that I interviewed said the guarding was extremely lax. There was no guarding on foot between the compounds. It was just from these various guard towers. So they picked a spot out of sight of the guard towers. The entrance to the tunnel was out in the open. It wasn't even inside of a building. <laughs> one, one, one-eyed guards that are hard of hearing. You know? and, what and, could go wrong? And, and up in a guard tower in December in Phoenix. You, they were napping. Yeah, oh, in a 70, 50 to 70 degree weather with a cool breeze and a shade. They were napping. <laughs> now, how long... Did it take to round up? Did we did we round up all twenty five? Did any of them make us a great escape? No, none of them made it. There were, uh, like I said, there were twenty five who escaped. Seven turned themselves in almost immediately because there was a record rainfall that night and their rations had spoiled. So, seven of them were trying to make their way to the Tempe uh, train station. Some of these guys, there was um, like a Kurt, Kurt Mordek, for example. Kurt had escaped three other times from Papago, so he knew the area well. He knew where the Tempe train station was. He knew where Sky Harbor was. He knew all the places to avoid. And when their rations spoiled, they turned themselves in to people living in the the area around the, the the train station. So these people got a knock on the door. Oh my goodness! And here are Germans saying, you know, we in their best English, we we surrender. They would bring the people in, make them a meal, call the authorities, and then they would come and try to pick them up. Uh, Heinrich Palmer and uh, Reinhard Mark made it the furthest of any of them. They made it within two miles of the Mexican border on foot, traveling at night in 10 days. That's impressive. They were uh, in very good shape. They were both from a German raider called the uh, Thor. So they were in very excellent condition. Uh, Hein was 24 years old, and he said that they conditioned themselves in the camp to make, you know, b- before the escape to get themselves in in better shape. What they needed By was, digging through caliche. Right. Oh, holy cow. But what they needed was unmarked clothing. All of their clothes had to be stenciled with the letters PW on their shirts, on their pants. And their clothing was inspected every week to make sure that they did not have any unmarked clothes. Well, the prisoners in Compound 2 provided unmarked clothing for them by washing out this paint. And then they would attach these um, civilian clothes to a broomstick. And they made a bow out of a 2x4 and launched it over the the fence (laughs) dividing the two compounds. 
So when they escaped, they were wearing their PW-marked clothes. Once they got out, out of sight of the camp and the rain stopped, they changed into their unmarked clothes. But to pass inspection, they took their unmarked clothes and used toothpaste to put the letters PW on so they could easily wash that out with water once they were ready. Well, I was going to make a bad joke. Was, yeah. it, if they had two eyes, if the guards had two eyes, they might have noticed it was toothpaste. Now, <laughs> it must, must lose some kind of dimensional aspect with only one. So how long did it take authorities to round up all 25? They, they weren't rounded up as a group of 25. Seven turned themselves in. Two almost made it to Mexico. Se- several of them lived in tunnels right at Papago Park for a couple nights, didn't they? There were uh, three of them. Uh, Captain Wattenberg, who was the uh, senior German officer of the camp, he and two of his, he was a, a submarine captain, he and two of his crewmen, Walter Kozier and Johann Kramer, they actually uh, just stayed in a cave in P- Piestua Peak for the en- entire time. Uh, ha- uh, Johann and Walter even walked into Phoenix several times, and they had a beer at a bowling alley on 7th Avenue, and they stole newspapers to bring back to Wattenberg, who could read English, to see how the escape was going. And then on the way back, as they passed through the orchards, they would steal citrus fruits like oranges and grapefruit to bring back. Um, Walter and Johan were captured one time while they were um, walking into Phoenix, and Wattenberg was captured. He was the, the last one to be captured in February. So this is December 23rd to roughly February 3rd is the time that the okay. prisoners were, were out. Wattenberg decided to try and hop a train to California. And so he, in the early hours of the morning, he walked into downtown Phoenix and asked a, uh, a street worker where the train station was. And the worker noticed his slight German accent. So he alerted a Phoenix policeman. The Phoenix policeman went and questioned him and then Wattenberg turned himself in. Now, one of the reasons why the Germans had no problem with escaping is they knew they would not be severely punished afterwards. All they got was two weeks on on bread and water, and that was it. So what Wattenberg did... Were they put back at the Papago yes. POW camp? Yes. And the, the ironic thing is Compound 1A, where they escaped from, this was the compound that they put all of the escape artists from other camps from other states. Wow. So Wattenberg and others, uh, Hans-Werner Krauss, who was another uh, sub-captain who I, I interviewed, these were all guys that the Americans labeled the so-called troublemakers. These were habitual as escapees. They put them all in the same compound, and that's where they escaped from. And so when Wattenberg was going back to Papago, he knew he was going to be on bread and water. He didn't like that. So he told the authorities that he had hurt his leg coming down from the mountain so that they would put him in the hospital where he would get better food and even and even ice cream. Oh, man. <laughs> and two really funny stories that come out of this is one, 25 German POWs escape. In the 40s, it's not like News and TV and radio are what they are today and social media. But still, I mean, the paper was very popular. Um, Arizona Republic, front page headline news, 25 escapees. It was on page six. <laughs> the, the citizens of, of Phoenix that I, I interviewed, I asked them, were you scared? Were you? And they said, no, we, we had seen these guys on a regular basis. They worked outside the camp. They worked for Salt River Project. They worked picking cotton. 
one of the um, submariners, Yosef Moore, was a gardener at the Biltmore, for instance. They said they were an everyday sight in the valley, so, and they knew that they were just, just young boys, and they didn't fear them. But there was um, some people in the media, like, like Walter Winchell. Walter Winchell was a famous um, radio. He had a, a sensationalistic radio show. And he was also a syndicated columnist. He really stirred up the, the pot. He said to the people of Phoenix, lock your doors. These vicious Nazis are going to kill you in the middle of the night and this sort of thing. And the public, at least the ones that I talked to, didn't buy any of that. You know who was most endangered, it sounded like, in all of this? When they were searching for the escapees and they went to arrest the Boy Scout troop. <laughs> this is one of my favorite... My, Oops! <laughs> Favorite story. Wrong uniform. <laughs> they, they were being spotted everywhere. The Americans wanted to, to do their part in rounding them up. And so I include uh, in my book uh, articles like there was a, a Boy Scout troop and they, they, near San Diego. They were all marching in their brown uniforms and they were uh, spotted and they were called in as they, were, they found the, uh, the escaped prisoners. But one of my favorite stories is from a guy named George Spears. He was a high school student in Winslow at the time. And he and his buddy named Ed Singer were in a basketball tournament in Flagstaff, and they had got eliminated immediately. And they were wearing their Winslow High School letter sweaters standing on the train platform in Flagstaff. And he said this elderly Flagstaff policeman came up to them and said, what are you guys doing? And George said they had been taking German in high school, and so they answered, was ist los, which means what's, what's up, what's going on? He said this cop pulled out his gun immediately, aimed at him, and says, get in this car right now. I'm taking you both in. So they got in this car, and George says there was no screen between the front and back seats. So the guy was driving with one hand, and he had his gun on them <laughs> the whole time. They brought him into the Flagstaff uh, police station, and the cop came in and said, I got two of those, those Germans. They spoke German to me. And the police chief just started laughing. And said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll handle this. And George said to the police chief, you know, my dad is the editor of the Winslow Mail. He says, this is going to make a funny story, the efficiency of the Flagstaff <laughs> police. And the uh, police chief said, look, kid, if I give you two guys a ride back to Winslow, we and not say anything about it? And so he promised that when he got back, and so he didn't. He never told his dad about it until years and years later. We're talking about the great Papago escape 25 German prisoners of war escaped from a prisoner of war camp that was built where Papago Park currently is. Steve, you you give presentations on this subject. Oh, how, yes. How, been, how would people get a hold of you? Um, I've been speaking on this for 25-plus years. Uh, if anybody there listening has a civic organization or a group that you'd like me to come and do a presentation free of charge, uh, you can give me a call at work. Uh, my number is 480-362-6342. And I'd be more than happy to come out and speak to you. And can where it, could somebody get a copy of this book? Well, it's out of print, but um, usually when I do my presentations, I will run some off on my, on my computer and I will have them uh, okay. available. Can well, I can I see the tunnel today? No. The, that uh, they dug? The, to, to give, I, just, I still can't believe they dug it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they walked through the fence. <laughs> to, 
to, to give the listeners an idea of where the camp was, it's just north of where the Phoenix Zoo is. So the geographic boundaries of the camp was between Thomas Road and McDowell Road and Barnes Butte and the Crosscut Canal. So 64th Street runs right through the middle of where the camp used to be. So the tunnel actually came out on the east side of the camp, right on the bank of the Arizona Crosscut Canal. The Army Corps of Engineers blew the tunnel up, <laughs> but in order to raise money for the war effort, the people who lived in the area were allowed to come and look down the tunnel if they bought a $25 war bond. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> I, I will mention there is a marker where the escape tunnel uh, Oh, goes. is there? There is a marker. It's right there along the bike path, uh, just a little bit off, off of Oak Street. And I run by it just virtually every day. They put that marker down that uh, the actual point where they esca- the escape tunnel went into the crosscut. What a hoot. I've, 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 I knew this story, but not to this detail. The Rosie on the House, Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Lake Havasu City is known as Arizona's ultimate play destination. We've spent the whole month talking about it. You've got the lake and everything you can do on the lake from water skiing, water sports, fishing, the English Village, the London Bridge, the London Bridge Hotel, the Nautical Beachfront Resort. And today is the 25th anniversary of when the mercury scale tipped 128 degrees in Lake Havasu City, the hottest recorded temperature on any incorporated town in the USA. You can celebrate at the Hot for Havasu on Cocoa Beach Stage at Bridgewater Channel. Now, you don't need a boat. You can walk or ride bikes 3 to 6 p.m. And you can watch ice sculptures melt along with enjoying the cool water that's about 85 degrees. And we've got Chuck, our staycation winner, who stayed at the Nautical Beach Front last week. Chuck? Hi, Wilmy. How's it going? Very good. How was your staycation? It was absolutely fabulous. Very enjoyable. Now, had you ever been to Lake Havasu City before? Uh, we had, but only from the standpoint of driving through on the way to someplace else. <laughs> so, Well, that's the point of the staycation. It's to get, get Arizona to stop because there was a lot of great uh, locations this state has to offer. What was, uh, what was some of your highlights? Well, we uh, obviously took in the lake, and uh, we did go on a tour of the lake with some of the history. And that was wonderful. The water clarity was uh, utterly amazing and a nice cool breeze. The Visitor Center actually had a wonderful history lesson, so to speak, of the London Bridge and its construction. Just an amazing uh, architectural feat. And uh, we took in a couple of the uh, restaurants, uh, the local fairs, and uh, get a couple of state parks while we're at it and the wildlife refuge. And to travel there, which uh, Sanderson Ford did y'all enjoy? We had an explorer, actually a Ford Explorer, so kindly provided by Sanderson and yourselves. And I literally can't say enough about uh, the crew at Sanderson's. I, I know that it's easy. Rosie gets on and you get on and say how wonderful it is. There's no doubt about it. They are that wonderful. And what did we have on the gift basket for you this time? Well, let's see. We had uh, Soretta candies, uh, some road trip candy as well, uh, some pistachios, uh, the books from uh, Arizona Highways, which we actually put to really good use along the way. Uh, so that worked out well. Chili, which my wife just can't get enough of, hot chili. So she was thrilled. 
Perfect. I certainly appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, tell us about the trip. Glad you had such a great time. Thanks for spending Saturday mornings with us. Oh, it is always our pleasure. It, it is the, a normal routine. It's not a normal Saturday if we're not listening to you guys. So we greatly appreciate the opportunities that you gave us and uh, wish all of everyone well. And we appreciate our, our partnership with Sanderson Ford making that possible for our listeners. You know, the heat, the 128-degree heat record wasn't the only thing world record set in Lake Havasu. 2014 was a big year for oh, yeah? Lake Havasu and records. A gentleman by the name of Lee Stone at the International Jet Sports Boating Association World Finals did 36 straight backflips on his jet ski, a world record that still holds today. <laughs> Only at Lake Havasu. <laughs> and, and later that year, a Hector Brito caught a 7 point excuse me, 5.78-pound red ear sunfish, the largest recorded sunfish ever caught. And they think the reason that they're so big in Lake Havasu is because of the invasive guaga mussel, oh. which is their primary food source. So it makes them bigger in Lake oh. Havasu than anywhere else. Some other things going on around, around the state this week. Flagstaff, we got the Pro Rodeo this weekend, started yesterday, runs through the whole weekend. But they also have the Festival of Pines coming up the 4th through the 6th, the great uh, great Indian festival that uh, will be going on right there at the fairgrounds. And <laughs> Tucson Museum of Art celebrates Travel and Exploration Exhibit. Going on 250 years of traveling uh, the Grand Tour in Europe and also the American West. That exhibits, uh, it's in downtown Tucson, and that runs through Sunday, September 28th. And I think this is one of those times they didn't look at the URL before they decided that this is the URL we're going to buy. Tucson Museum of Art. Think about the end of that. Of art. Think about the last letter of, of, <laughs> and art. <laughs> and put that together in a sense. I don't think that's what the mu- Museum of Art was going for when they got that. <laughs> and then in Mesa, there is a piece of the USS Arizona battleship that sunk in Pearl Harbor that's on display. It's five feet tall, three feet wide, and it's been at the U.S. Naval Storage Yard in Hawaii. They requested to have it brought over to the Arizona, the Air Base Arizona Museum. That's a, a three. I've never. I didn't even know about this museum. It's thirty thousand square feet, square foot museum in Mesa. I don't know it either. So I'm gonna go check that out though yeah. while it's still there. And bringing it back to our guest, Mr. Steve Hosa, who is a conservator and has been sharing the story of the escaped German POWs. And he, we had mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, but. There is 24 POW camps in Arizona, and if somebody wanted to have you out to speak to any of that, your contact information again? You can give me a call at 480-362-6342.